Good morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the book of Proverbs. If you're with the threes and fours class, you're dismissed to your class. Thank you for worshiping with us. We're in Proverbs chapter one. If you, you don't have a Bible and you would like a, a hard copy to look off of, uh, Mr. John Smith's coming down the aisles. He's got one, so just slip up your hand and he will give you a copy of God's word to look off of. Proverbs chapter 1, or not, sorry, not chapter 1, chapter 5, not chapter 1, chapter 5 is where we are. Uh, we have been journeying through the book of Proverbs uh, since the first Sunday in January, and uh, we've really hit a stride now, taking uh, whole chapters at a time. It won't be like that throughout uh, the whole study. It took us three or four weeks to get through chapter one, uh, and then it took us a couple weeks to get through chapter two, and then we've done one sermon on chapter three, one sermon on chapter four, one sermon on chapter five. We'll slow down again in chapter six uh, and do a few sermons on that, and then hopefully make our way all the way through uh, chapter nine, looking at the structure of Proverbs. And then once we hit 10, we'll take big themes, big themes that we see repeated over and over and over again. But today, uh, we'll continue our journey working through chapter 5, and as we begin reading it, you will recognize the voice. So one of the things that Proverbs does, if you haven't been with us traveling through this book, is that the Proverbs is teaching us about God's wisdom. That is, the way in which we know God and live God's way in God's world. In fact, wisdom is defined in the book of Proverbs as uh, the thing with which God created the universe, that he, he wove together the universe with his own wisdom. And so to, to be foolish is to walk contrary to God's design that he's woven in the very fabric of creation, the way that humans were made to flourish. And so one of the ways the author is communicating to us uh, what this wisdom is and, and, and trying to teach us what this wisdom is, is that it, the author gives wisdom these different voices to help us identify with wisdom. So in chapter one, it's lady wisdom crying out in the streets saying, saying, listen to the way of the Lord and pleading. And this wisdom is for everyone in every situation at the street corner, in the marketplace. But there's also this other voice throughout Proverbs, and it's the voice of a father, the voice of a father who is instructing his son, preparing his son uh, to live God's way in God's world. So we've heard this voice of the father. Last week we heard even the voice of the grandfather and how, how this, this, the father's teaching the wisdom that he received from his father. But today, as we hear the instruction of the father, we will actually notice that the son is a little bit older. In fact, according to the context, it seems like the son who's soaking up the father's wisdom, he's actually married at this point. But the father is still instructing, still preparing him for the way of wisdom before him. So just as we've done with every chapter thus far, our aim, we want to recognize repeated themes that overlap from chapters we've seen already, but we want to give special attention to new concepts that sort of lay a layer of understanding of God's wisdom. And so, so this is what we're going to do. We're going to read the whole chapter, and then we're going to pause and pray for 
understanding. Proverbs chapter 5. Listen to what the son teaches, or what the father teaches his son. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end, she's bitter as wormwood. Sharp as a two-edged sword, her feet go down to death, her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, How I hated discipline. My heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern. Flowing water from your own well, should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone, not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a a graceful doe, let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be be intoxicated always in her love. Why, Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman, and and embrace the bosom of an adulteress. For for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. He ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. He is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we pray, you, God, you have sovereignly brought this text to this moment for our congregation to read and study and hear, and God, we pray that you would help us to understand it, why it is you've preserved this chapter of wisdom for thousands of years for this moment for our church to hear. God, we pray that you would help us to understand it. Help us to believe it, even when our hearts don't want to believe it. And God, help us to live in light of the truth, the wisdom that you have passed down to us, God. We pray, uh, I pray, that you would help me to speak only true things from the scriptures. Uh, No opinion of man, but only words of God. Protect me, Lord, from error, and help me to speak in the power of the filling of the Holy Spirit, God. We pray, um, use this for our good and for your glory. And we pray all these things by your grace alone and for your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Proverbs chapter 5, the big picture argument of the chapter is clear. The father is continuing this relationship with the son, 
and the son is, uh, seems to be married, and the father's continuing his mentorship. He is continuing to speak words of wisdom. It's that this is interesting fact, little tidbit or little note here, that the son didn't stop needing the father's wisdom when he turned 18. Uh, he didn't stop needing the father's wisdom when he hit some sort of age uh, limit. There's still a need for the speaking of wisdom into his life. Now the need is for how to be faithful and to persevere in his marriage. This theme uh, is a theme about the destruction of sexual sin, intimacy, outside the bounds of the covenant marriage designed by God. Now, this is a theme that's going to be picked up in a lot more detail in the end of chapter 6 and for the entirety of chapter 7, not to mention all the ways it's scattered throughout the rest of the book. But adultery and the sexual relationship outside of the covenant marriage is a massive theme in the book of Proverbs, and we've, we've defined wisdom in Proverbs as living God's way in God's world. So the definition of wisdom assumes that God has a particular design and order for the way the world works. And that's true of everything in the world. It's especially true for marriage and sexuality. And this was God's idea. It has a particular design for it. In fact, the whole battle for our hearts between the wisdom of God... And the foolishness of sin is actually symbolized in Proverbs and in the whole book of the Bible by this battle between the adulterous woman leading to death and lady wisdom leading to life. So sexual sin is obviously a disobedience, contradiction to God's world, but, but in Proverbs and in the Bible, sexual sin and adultery is often used as representative of what sin is as a betrayal of a relationship we have with God, a commitment relationship we have with God. So, so we've noticed that Solomon, as he writes Proverbs, he's gleaning from his deep understanding of Genesis through Deuteronomy. Uh, we, we have a text in Deuteronomy that talks about every king of Israel would have his own handwritten copy of the Torah, God's instruction, first five books of the Bible. And so you see that filter in through everything that Solomon does. And one of the things you see is that at the end of Deuteronomy, this is how it describes the sin of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 15 says this. The Lord appeared in the tent in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood over the entrance of the tent. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, you're about to lie down with your fathers. And this is what the people will do. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they're entering, and they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. So you see how how the Bible is using the breaking of a a sexual covenant with uh, the breaking of a covenant with God. God likens adultery to that, uh, uh, idolatry to that of someone who's turning their back on a spouse, breaking the covenant they once made. This is what an idolatrous sin is. It's forsaking the relationship we have with our God. So this chapter very much is about God's plan uh, for, for marriage and sex to be enjoyed in marriage. It's about the horrors of adultery, but it's also about the father preparing his son to be a good warrior against all kinds of temptations that are going to come his way. Everything the father teaches the son here 
is applicable not only to the sin of adultery, but it's applicable to resisting any and every kind of sin that we face any day. The father's preparing his son for an onslaught of other voices other than the voice of Lady Wisdom. Now, in a few weeks, uh, we will focus entirely on that topic of sexuality, adultery, marriage in God's world according to Proverbs, but since there's even more coverage of that in the end of chapter 6, full all of chapter 7, today what I want us to focus on are the kinds of tools that the father is giving his son for fighting these kinds of temptations. So that's, that's what we're going to focus on. We could focus on a lot of different things about this patch, but we're going to focus on uh, what's the, how is the father prepping his son to fight the good fight. So the first thing I want you to notice, it comes in the first two verses. This is a command that we have seen repeated frequently. In fact, it's a command that every parent repeats regularly, and it's just the command to listen, right? So you might ask, why is Proverbs repeating itself over and over and over again? Because you don't listen to wisdom the first time. And, and we know that our children do not. We say, listen, listen, listen. And so verse 1, chapter 5, my son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. Incline your ear to my understanding. That's the same thing as my wife looking at me and saying, no, look me in the eyes. Look me in the eyes. Make sure that you're actually hearing <laughs> and not just going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Incline your ear to understand. Again, in verse 7, O sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. The father even warns that if the son doesn't become the kind of man who will listen, he will regret it. Verse 12, Oh, you will say how I hated discipline. My heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to instructors. I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. So in today's sermon, we're going to look at five tools or five essentials for fighting against temptation. And it all begins with this one that we will see over and over and over again. Number one essential for fighting temptation, be teachable. Be teachable. Now, this has been and will continue to be one of the most distinguishing marks of wisdom in the book of Proverbs. Wise people are teachable people. Fools think they already know it all. Wise people recognize that they are capable of great sins. Foolish people think they are untouchable with the kinds of sins other people struggle with. The Father's first order of business in every one of these lectures has been to shape his son to be the kind of person who will be attentive to someone else's wisdom, who will incline their ear to someone else's instruction, who will listen to the voice of multiple teachers. Satan loves unteachable people. Satan loves self-confident, independent, isolated decision-making. Christian, if you hope not to fall into any 
kind of just life-destroying sin, whether that be adultery, pervasive, blinding pride, greed, anger, falsehood, idolatry, you'd better be the kind of person who opens your life up to other people, and you have to be the kind of person who gives them the license to instruct you, teach you, speak into your life, even when it's hard things. You'd better be the kind of person who seeks out discipline. You better be the kind of person who spends time with other people who will stretch you, challenge you, and call you to more. Now, this is why the foolish man walks to his death. Verse 23, he dies for lack of discipline. Now, when we defined discipline uh, several weeks back. When Proverbs uses discipline, it's not necessarily speaking to the type of, sp- when we say spiritual disciplines, like doing the same thing or the right thing over and over again. Sure, there, there's, there's some sort of training element, but when the, it speaks of discipline, it means reproof. It means receiving correction from somebody else, right? He dies because he refuses to receive correction from anyone else. That's how the fool dies. True discipline, that is loving correction, is something that you have to actually seek out. You actually have to give other people the license to say hard things to you, especially in our culture. As an adult, you may have never had these kinds of conversations with your earthly fathers. You may not even know your earthly father. You have to actively seek these kinds of relationships with people who will love you enough to confront you and challenge your thinking and say hard things. Proverbs says, if you don't, you'll die via foolishness. Prepare now to be the kind of man and woman who will not unknowingly even fall into a pattern of self-destructive sin. Cultivate teachability. Otherwise, You will always be led astray by the echo chamber of your own mind where you only hear your own voice and the voices of those who will agree with you. You will always justify your sin as not that bad, not that troublesome, not that dangerous. The consequences are not that bad. You'll always make decisions putting yourselves in situations where wise people may have protected you from. You'll find yourself stuck in situations, shackled to sin, entangled in the cords of wickedness because you don't invite anyone to help you untangle those cords with you and for you. Proverbs eleven fourteen 14 uh, is something that's regularly quoted. Where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in abundance of counselors, there is safety. Essential number one, teachability. The father then goes on to do some teaching. The father holds no punches. He does not speak in code. (laughs) He speaks very clearly. Verse 3, the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end, she's a bitter wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she doesn't know it. Essential number one, be teachable. Essential number two, see sin for what it is and where it leads. See sin for what it is and where it leads. Two realities the father is trying to depict to the son here. Firstly, he wants his son to know 
that sinful things will appeal to his natural desires. <laughs> I mean, he wants the son to know the forbidden thing will look awesome. It will appeal to the natural desire of your soul. The lips of the forbidden woman will drip with honey. Her speech will be smoother than oil. Sin will look good, sound good, feel good, and everything in your soul will explain to yourself why it's not that bad if you indulge in this. How can something as sweet as honey be bad for my soul? Or bad for anyone else. You will argue with yourself about the morality of the thing that you want to do. And you will make up wonderfully intricate justifications. You will inevitably make the thing seem less bad, less costly, less serious. And you will even start to convince yourself why this sin is justifiable, enjoyable, and understandable. And Solomon knew the human heart because he had one. <laughs> and as we see in his lifetime, he ultimately went against his own wisdom that he was writing. The father wants his son to know, firstly, that his heart will long for these things, but secondly, the father wants his son to know that the sin of adultery, like all sin, leads not to more joy. It doesn't do the thing you thought it would do for your soul. The sweet lips dripping with honey turn into a kind of bitter poison, <laughs> a, a sharp sword, an invitation to the grave. The father describes the forbidden woman as someone who is herself on her way to Sheol, wandering apart from the path of life, and she doesn't even know it. She, she does not even know that the, the path she's taking is a path to the grave. And if you turn to her, the father wants the son to know it will cost you more than you were wanting to pay. Verse 9 through 14 lists the cost. Look at verse 9. He says, lest you give honor to others and your years to the merciless. In other words, your adulterous decision will cost you your honor. Now, that's a big deal to us, and we don't live in an honor-shame type culture where that's everything, but in this culture, this is everything. The consequence of sin is a kind of shame that is hard to overcome. Even if your community, listen, even if your community responds perfectly to you, if they forgive you, if they work for your restoration, if they love you through it, if they said the hard thing with just the right amount of grace and compassion, the feeling of shame that comes with this kind of sin is unavoidable and it is difficult to push through. The feeling of guilt is an inevitable aspect of the consequence of sin. And some people never repent, primarily because they cannot recover from the shame that they feel in it. Not necessarily that there's an outside world pushing that shame on them, not necessarily that there's a church pushing that shame upon them, but some people will never return, even to this church, because of the shame that they feel, because their honor has been destroyed in their eyes, by the thing that they've done. Self-imposed even shame. Part of the consequence of sin is having to face the whole community that it has affected. I mean, look at verse 14. Part of their regret. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. 
You see, neither the Old Testament nor the New Testament is interested in saving face when evil is done within the community. I mean, I think, I think a lot of our temptation to never uh, talk about things and to keep everything so secret, and a lot of our temptation comes from our individualistic American culture more than it does from what we see in the New Testament. I mean, we see this reality even in Paul's instruction to the church. I mean, get this. If an elder was to sin in an egregious way, that is, if a pastor were to sin in an egregious way, listen to what Paul says to do. The, the process is one that brings the thing to light. First Timothy chapter 5, uh, verse 19, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, you got a pastor who's persisting in this unrepentant sin, rebuke him in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Anybody been to a, a member meeting where that's happened? <laughs> Can you f- imagine the way in which you feel? What, some of the consequences of sin is that it doesn't just affect you, it affects an entire community in such a way that you, you do feel the shame over the destruction you've done, not just to you, but to others. This is an awful consequence of sin, that we are accountable to a community of faith that even if they love us, forgive us, embrace us, facing them is still hard for us. Beyond that, he, he warns it's not just going to cost your honor, it may cost you your years. What you thought would lead to some kind of thrill in life, it might just actually end your life, as Solomon says. If it doesn't end your life immediately, it may cost your livelihood. I mean, he's thinking of a vengeful husband now uh, coming to then wreck your world because you slept with his wife. And, and as things were carried out in the community there within Israel, like he's expecting like you might die because of this. We see this again later in chapter 6 and verse 7, but look at verse 10. Uh, Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to a house of a foreigner. Sin very often practically costs you Financially, the, 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 the outburst and the outrage of the community over the adultery might cost you uh, even financially. The father's warning that adultery could cost his livelihood, his inheritance, financial security he labored for. Not that these are the most important aspects of, of adultery's blast radius, but they're financial cost even today. And when you think about someone's life whose marriage has fallen apart, fallen apart divorce, child support, court fees, loss of jobs, uh, difficult in being hired in the future at a job if it took place in the workplace. I mean, when you walk contrary to God's way in God's world, there are very often real consequences, real world consequences. You walk contrary to the very fabric with which creation was made, the wisdom of God, you're bound to hit rough patches that you would not have otherwise hit. The father goes on, it's not just social shame, it's not just physical death, it's, it's not just loss of resources, it's also just the mental and emotional regret that you will feel after the decision that you've made. Look at verse 11. The father tells the son, son, listen, listen, at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline. My heart despised reproof. I didn't listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ears to my instructors. When the lips dripping with honey and the smooth words coerce you 
to indulge in the sin God warns against, you're not thinking about in that moment the depth of the groans that you will feel after the fact. Any, any person that I've talked to in the aftermath of a bad week with pornography usage will tell you that the depth of the sorrow after the fact is way more intense than the joy of the moment or the ecstasy of the moment looking at the screen. You're in the moment, you're not thinking about that depth of regret. You're not thinking about how desperately you will wish that you had decided differently. Your sin will bring such regret, but not only that, it will take you farther than you ever wanted to go. It, 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 it has this tendency to pull you deeper into something than you ever imagined yourself going. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 22, he says, the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. He is held fast in the cords of his sin. So what started out as you thinking that you were exercising your freedom what started out as you feeling free as a bird, free from God's laws or rules that were restricting you from joy, what started out as freedom, very quickly you realize it's an enslavement to something that you never wanted to be enslaved to, and it took you farther than you ever wanted to go into the depths of sin you never wanted to do. Sin is never a one-and-done slip-up or accident. Big sins like adultery always have tangled in them a web of deep varieties of sinfulness that led to the actual moment of adultery. The adultery was a symptom of a sin of the deeper heart issues that led to the moment. The, the moment of that physical act was a symptom of a whole host of tangled encordments pulling you deeper than you thought you could go. Our sin is never without its companions or accomplices working together to entangle its prey. Iniquities have a way of ensnaring us and holding us fast. And not only will you regret your sin, you'll just be plunged into more of it. And you'll be plunged even to more regret. And all of these consequences the father's putting before his son, they're, they're true of all of us who choose sin in a variety of ways. But this punishment, these consequences to the wickedness of sin will be the eternal reality of those who ultimately choose the path of sin and self-reliance over the path of righteousness found in Jesus. I want you to think about this, these consequences. The worst consequences of sin be seen throughout the Proverbs. They're only foreshadows of the final reality of hell that the Bible speaks about. For all those who reject the ultimate wisdom incarnate, right, Jesus of Nazareth, the embodiment of wisdom and flesh, saying, follow me and find eternal life. For those who reject him, because all sin is so ghastly and devilish and contrary to the wisdom and graciousness of a holy God, all sin of any and every kind leads to an eternal place where flesh and body is consumed and where you will forever and always only feel the depth of regret. Every person separated from God at death will forever be plagued with these thoughts on repeat. For a million years, repeated over and over in your head, oh, how I hated discipline and how my heart despised reproof. 
I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. It's one thing to realize that now. It's another thing to realize that after it's too late. The father knows that if the son has any shot in fighting the tantalizing temptations of the world, he has to actively load himself consciously of how bad it really is and where it ultimately leads. And that's what he wants us to do. The father goes on and, and basically, if it's this bad son, then, then, then extra steps need to be taken. Look at verse 8. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. So, so be teachable, number one. Number two, see sin for what it is and where it leads. Number three, set real boundaries and take real steps to fight temptation. There's a reason the Apostle Paul uses the language of warfare when he talks about the Christian life. He does not aim for you to to just say, woe is me, I am struggling with this sin. No, 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 The, the aim of the Bible is for you to stop complaining about how sinful you are and to fight, to take real steps to recognize a real enemy. The Father says, don't even get close to her door, (laughs) Don't, don't, I'm not even just telling you, like, don't go in. I'm saying, like, walk on the other side of the street so that the temptation is not there to go inside that door. Don't even get close to the door. Set up some kind of real boundary in your life to protect you because there is an enemy against which we war. I mean, the Bible says that Satan himself is roaming around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Charles Spurgeon says this in his preaching, that Satan is always watching to see where you're not looking. He is always on the alert when you are slumbering. Christian, we have an enemy who is strategizing to put us into situations where we will fall to our destruction. Paul uses the language of scheming, that we need to withstand the schemes of the devil. There is strategy behind the enemy in our lives. And if there's strategy behind the enemy in our lives, then we need to have some strategy to overcome him, do we not? We must move carefully and strategically and without compromise to just, let's just not go down that street. If we know that's the street where the enemy has laid the snare. The father urged the son, don't go down, not even near the door. Now, now let me ask you this. What is the vice that you are most inclined to entertain rather than to fight against? I mean, is it greed? Is it sexual morality? Is it isolation and independence? Is it self-indulgence with entertainment to the neglect of your family and your household and the mission of God in your life? Is it a kind of pride and arrogance that makes you really fast to speak but really slow to listen? Is it a kind of selfishness that never takes responsibility, but rather always blames someone else? Is it the kind of self-centeredness that is always mad at everyone else's failure to affirm you, but you're never pouring out for anyone else or making any disciples or being a producer of any kind of God-centered community? And what's the door, the street, the house that you shouldn't go near because of the soothing call of destructive temptations in your life? What is it? Is it isolation? Is it driving home and being by yourself 
every single day because it's easier than what God's called you to in biblical community? Furthermore, what is the door, but how are you avoiding the door? I mean, what accountability are you building into your life? What barriers, boundaries, strategies have you schemed up to counterattack the scheming of the devil? Charles Hodge wrote this, Satan, the great adversary, directs all his energy to prevent men from becoming the subject of that illumination of which the gospel, as the revelation of the glory of Christ, is the source. Satan really doesn't care what you're distracted by. He just doesn't want you to be a beaming light for the cause of Christ. If he's pouring out all his energy to destroy us, let's pour out our energy to stand firm into the day of his destruction. Three things so far. Be teachable, see sin for what it is, where it leads, set real boundaries, and take real steps to fight temptation. The father's doing everything he can to equip the son, uh, but beyond outlining the danger and potential consequences, he also wants to provide for him what he should be focusing on in this particular situation. He wants his son to find contentment and joy and delight in the undeserved blessing that God has provided him. I mean, one of the things, reasons you fall into sin is actually discontentment with the blessings God's put right before you. So this leads us to number four. Number four, delight in the Lord's blessing. Delight in the Lord's blessings. Verse 15. This is the point that the Father's getting at here in a poetic way. Drink water from your own cistern. Flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the street, let them be for yourself alone, not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? The father is wisely warning the son that his failure will have begun long before he actually walks into the door of the adulteress to the pit of Sheol. He will not accidentally stumble into her quarters without having already lost sight of the responsibility and the blessing of loving his own family and his own wife. Many failures will have gotten him to that door before he ever opens that door. He will not seek out sinful satisfaction unless he's already lost sight of the responsibility he has to his own spouse. You see, the war against sin is never just a struggle to avoid certain things. It's never just a running away from things. It is always a warfare to enjoy and be thankful for the right things. And this is most certainly true in the case of marriage, right? Marriage is a fight to delight in the precious, preciousness of your spouse, even when you don't see it. <laughs> it's a commitment to enjoy what God says is better. So you protect yourself from destroying sin by the right kind of delight. Now, this is true for marriage, but man, this is, this is true for every aspect of sin ever, right? We, we pursue what is good, and then we will not turn to what is evil. The father advocates for his son to enjoy his spouse, to enjoy the gift the Lord has given you. Now, if you're not married, don't feel left out or covetous here. 
I mean, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 7, verse 5, that married couples should uh, give themselves to one another. They should only not do that for prayer. <laughs> but then right after that, Paul says, uh, it's great for you to be single. It's fantastic for you to be single, so don't be covetous here. Uh, Paul immediately goes on to say there's value in living for the kingdom of God. The point of Proverbs 5 for non-married people is not that, well, you need to get married to fix your sexual problems. No, no, no. I think the broader takeaway is, is to fight some temptation is to delight in the blessings that the Lord has given you. And the reason you're giving into that temptation is because that you do not appreciate the abundance of God's grace in your life. This is how the fight works. Purity is always a determined pursuit to delight in the right things. Philippians 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say again, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. The peace of God surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts, your minds in Christ. Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That's how you fight sin. You set your mind on precious things. There's one more essential tool here for fighting temptation that I want you to take note of. Um, The father wants the son to load his mind, not just with the consequences of sin, not just with the rewards for faithfulness, the good things God's put before his eyes. He wants him to load his consciousness with a very real awareness of God. Look at verse 21. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. He ponders all his past. Last last essential for fighting temptation here is this. Live for the Lord. If it's just what other people are going to think about you, you'll fall every time. If it's just you processing through the consequences and whether they're that bad, you'll fall every time. Essential five is live for the Lord. The father wants to remind his son that God is present in every moment. That Yahweh himself, the one true God, is watching over your path. Every thought and action you think you do in darkness is totally and entirely seen by the eyes of your God. And it should concern you if you think about the severity of your sin only in terms of what other people will think. The most important, most glorious, most holy being in the cosmos already knows. Depths of your sinfulness that you don't even know. Our our rebellion is first and foremost against a holy God the King of kings and Lord of lords who showed his love for us through sacrificial death on a cross, burial, and resurrection. If your motivation for holiness is only horizontal, then you're already in a mess. You will only judge a temptation based off of its impact, not based off of your relationship with the holy God. Now, as a Christian person, I want to please God 
I want to worship God. I want to honor God with my life. The sting of my sin is the way in which I have, I have displeased my Father in heaven. What a sobering thing to consider, a humbling thing to consider. What a wonderful thing to consider, though, that, that God is present in my darkest moment and that God still chose to save a sinner like me. I mean, that, that the gospel is, is for the man who drank the bitter wormwood, who went into the door. The gospel is for the one who failed Proverbs chapter 5. That Romans chapter 5 says, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The one who didn't do chapter 5 of Proverbs correctly. That verse 7 says, One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one dare even die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Some of y'all needed to wake up. That's why that just happened. <laughs> this is the most important part of the sermon right here. I'm about to worship even if I'm the only one. What a stunning thing that the God of the universe would love, sacrifice for, and forgive adulterers like us. Jesus knew exactly who he was dying for. He knew exactly how desperately we needed forgiveness, and he took the steps to the cross anyway. I mean, perhaps you're here hearing the sermon this morning, and all you feel is the weight of your shame, but perhaps you feel as if the adulteress has already led your hand to the depths of Sheol, and there's no more hope for you. Let me encourage you. Jesus of Nazareth never took the hand of the adulteress. He never took it. He never succumbed to the siren song of Satan's lies, even in the loneliest wilderness. He always prevailed in the moment of testing, and even though he never did anything to be led by the hand into Sheol, he walked into Sheol on purpose on your behalf. He he drank the bitter wormwood even though he never kissed the lips covered in honey. He, he had the two-edged sword thrust into his side, though he never even went into the door that you have been trekking in and out of for a year. Having never followed the feet of the adulteress, he went down to the grave, though his ears were always attentive to the wisdom of his father. And he had never sinned. He was publicly shamed as one with no honor. Before the congregation, he stood as one on the brink of ruin. Though he did not need to be there. This is the message of the gospel. This is the story of Jesus it's the story of God in human flesh who resisted all the temptations we couldn't resist and who died the death we deserve to die and who rose again from Sheol to give eternal life to any who would believe. He drank the bitter cup reserved for me. This is the best protection against temptation. To live for the Lord Jesus, who sets you free from sin and death forever and ever. That is the only motivation that will help you to hear the Father's words in Proverbs 
chapter 5. And so let's pray as all of us need these essentials every day.